every year from Christmas through Easter to Pentecost, which is usually May, we've been taking Matthew in chunks. We're in the final chunk. This is Matthew 26 to 28, and, uh, and we're uh, in Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. We looked at some of this passage last week, and then we're going to continue on for a few more verses this week, uh, up to verse 54. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow along right there in the bulletin. The text that we're going to be studying together is printed for you. So um, let's look at God's Word now together. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We commit our minds and our hearts to you, to your word, that you would instruct us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in our 12th sermon that we, since Christmas, answering the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? This is answer number 12. There's many layers to this rich event, central moment in the history of the world where the Son of God became a man and died in our place on the cross. And there's layers and layers of meaning uh, to that question, and we're going to be looking uh, today at that question, and then Good Friday will be the last homily where we answer that question. And then, of course, we'll, we'll look at the resurrection next week on Sunday. This morning, we are talking about the cross as God's central act of mission to save the world. It's an act of mission. And, uh, and if you're here and you're, you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible, you know, that great, big, intimidating book with all those pages, is remarkably a unified, coherent story. It was written by 40 different, at least 40 different people over a course of at least 15 centuries. Amazingly, different continents, different, you know, different uh, cultures, different languages, different centuries, and yet somehow it tells a unified story of the world. And of course, that's because God, through His Spirit, was inspiring these authors to to tell God's story in the world. And you might ask, well, what is the story of the Bible about? What is the basic story? And the basic story is this, is that God made a good world. You and I are living in a good world that was made by God. He made it beautiful. He made humans beautiful. He made, uh, you know, the trees and the mountains and everything that displayed His glory. And yet something has gone wrong in the 
world, and the thing that has gone wrong is that humanity has rebelled against God, and we said, you know what, we don't want you to be God, we want to be our own gods, and we're going to go our own way, and as a result, that's why we have all the misery and all the death and all the, the brokenness and the wars and the poverty in the world, and so as God's world was broken, God set himself on a mission to rescue his world and to rescue humanity, and the Bible is the story of how God has done that, and of course, that's a big question. How's he going to do it? How do you heal humanity? You know, with all the wars and all the poverty and the racism and the greed and the hatred and the oppression and the darkness that covers humanity. How do you heal it? How do you set things right? And of course, there's been many answers to that. You know, you go back a couple hundred years and, you know, many European countries said, you know, we've got this amazing civilization. We're going to take our civilization through and make these colonies all over the world in Africa and India and we're going to impose our civilization on the uncivilized barbarians of the world. And of course, you know, that's proven to have all kinds of problems, colonialization and, and, and imposing Western culture on, on non-Western peoples. And so people say, well, you know, civilizing the world doesn't work. And so maybe, you know, maybe education would work. You know, humanity is just broken because we were ignorant. If we just had information, then we would treat one another better. But all of us know that, you know, just learning a lot of information does not transform your character. It doesn't make you love your neighbor. And of course, and so that fails. You know, maybe wealth, the generation of wealth, or maybe technology and globalization tying together the whole world. We have many answers to say, you know, maybe democracy, if we could bring democracy to the parts of the world that don't have democracy, maybe that would set things right. And what is the Bible's answer, though, to that question? What heals humanity? Well, in the night before Jesus' death, this is in John chapter 12, one of the other Gospels, this is what Jesus says. And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John makes this note, and he says that Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says that his death on the cross is the thing that is going to draw all the peoples of the earth together and heal the world. That's the Bible's answer, is the cross. That's how God's going to answer it. And you say, well, how does it work? How does the cross bring healing to the world. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is God's mission to rescue his world. And this is his defining act. The main thing he did was Jesus' death on the cross. And so we're going to look at that by looking, look, studying this passage under two headings. And we'll see these two things about God's mission, that the cross, first, brings the nations to God, draws the nations to God, and second, the cross also, maybe more importantly, the cross brings God to the nations. So the cross brings the nations, the world is attracted, they're drawn to the cross. And yet the cross is actually the opening up of God going out, bringing himself to the world. So those are the two things that we're going to say. It's kind of a theology of mission this morning. And, you know, I was reading over this sermon as I was getting ready for the first service. And I was thinking, oh man, this is kind of all over the place. So I'm going to do my best to kind of tie it, rein it in for you, and you do your best to track with me. And, and I, there's a lot, there's some rich stuff in this passage, so hopefully we can, we can dig it out. So here we go. So the first thing is this. The cross brings the nations to God. And, you know, if you were here last week, we spent a lot of time focusing on verse 46 in this passage that famous saying from Jesus on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talked about how that uh, is a quote from the beginning of Psalm 22, one of the Psalms in the Old Testament. 
But one of the things that I didn't mention last week is that you know, whenever the Bible quotes, you know, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, one of the things the authors are intending for us to do is to not just think about that verse, but it's kind of shorthand for quoting the whole passage. So whenever a, a verse is quoted, you're supposed to think of the whole book that it was written in or that whole context it was written in. And they're assuming that you know what was in you know, that Old Testament passage, you know, especially Matthew would have writing to a, a Jewish audience. And what's interesting about Psalm 22 is this psalm that's largely about a person who's suffering. You know, he's crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then when you get to the end of Psalm 22, the whole tenor of the psalm changes. And it breaks out into this joyous song. And this is, let me read to you, this is a part of the end of Psalm 22. It says this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It's very strange. The psalm is about suffering, and yet it ends with this magnificent vision of all the nations, you know, remembering the Lord. And it's kind of going back to actually the very beginning of the Bible. The Bible begins with the call of Abraham. Abraham is chosen by God. Abraham was an idol worshiper. And God said, you know what, I'm going to put you in this land right in the middle of Africa and Asia and Europe, right in the crossroads of all the great superpowers of the world, and they're all going to see you. And in you, he says to Abraham, all the families of the earth will find blessing." It's the original call to mission, the promise of God's mission from Abraham. And here it is quoted in Psalm 22. And it's like all of humanity, all the cultural groups, all the ethnic groups, all the languages, they have this distant memory that we were made by God for purpose. And we've lost it. And he says, I'm going to go to all those nations. I'm going to awaken that memory in them of who I am and who they are. And they're going to come and they're going to worship me. And of course... Amazingly, that's what we are right here. That's what, you know, we're on the other, we are the nations. We're on the other side of the globe 2,000 years later in this. And all of us, if you're a Christian here today, that means that that memory has been awakened in you. That, oh, that memory that I was made by God and I was made for him. And he's drawn me and returned us all to him. This is the vision that is in Jesus' mind when he cries out Psalm 22 on the cross. It's all of Psalm, all of Psalm 22, this mission. Now, many people that will hear what Psalm 22 says, and says, you know, that, that makes me uncomfortable to have this idea that Christianity, the Bible, is going to go to all these multi-ethnic groups throughout, throughout the world, and they're all going to become Christian. You know, and it's like, you know, the, the world is so diverse. Why do we try to, you know, make it so uniform under this one religion? Each culture, why can't we just celebrate? You know, we've got the Hindus, and we've got the Buddhists, and we've got the Muslims, and we've got the Christians. They're all different. They have the, all different cultural identities. Why don't we just leave them alone and just learn to tolerate one another and celebrate the diversity of the world? Why don't we do that? Why do we have to have this picture of global people all coming to worship the God of the Bible? Well, uh... There are a number of problems with that. The first problem is that if we say we want everyone in the world to tolerate one another, tolerance is a very Western idea. That's, a, I, that's something that you know, people in Bellingham think. And what we're saying is, you know what I want to do, is I want to take what people in Bellingham think and I want to cover the whole world with Bellingham thinking. Actually, it's an ideology that we are, want everyone to obey. And so actually, sure, 
you know, modern secular people say, let's all tolerate one another. That's one thing that you can smear the whole world with. Or you can say, Jesus is the thing that's going to tie, tie the world together. And the other thing that's really important to recognize is that when we think of the gospel or the God of the Bible going to all the nations, what we picture often is, you know, Western European white people going out to non-European people and trying to civilize them. But Christianity is no longer a Western religion. The majority of the Christians of the world, by far now, are in the majority world. They're in Africa, and they're in South America, and they're in Asia. And it's an incredibly multicultural, multi-ethnic movement centered around Jesus. And um, this is the multi-racial, multicultural vision of Psalm 22 that, G- that Jesus has. I'll tell you what's really interesting is that many Jewish commentators, when they were reading Psalm 22 before Jesus came, you know, they recognized that there was going to come this time of renewal, and they imagined that Israel, their nation, would become the center superpower of the world, where all the nations would come and kind of serve them and serve their God. And, but, uh, you know, it kind of sounds like that cultural oppression that maybe we're imagining. And, uh, and yet, they said that before that golden age came, the age of the Messiah, where the Messiah would rule, there would be this time of suffering leading up to it called the Messianic Woes, where they would experience suffering that would lead into the golden age. But what no one imagined was that the king himself, the Messiah, the ruler of the golden age, would himself suffer, would himself die on the cross. And that totally turned upside down everything they thought about how the world would change. And so how is Jesus going to bring the nations, the ethnic groups and cultures of the world, together? He's not going to coerce them. He's not going to impose a civilization on them. He's not a world power going to the uncivilized. Jesus dies for them. He is a man on a cross who has compelled people with his love. And he says that the nations will see his love on the cross and they will not be forced. They will be drawn to him. And that's what's happened to us. Is is Christ, the love of Christ for us on the cross that has compelled us, it's drawn us, it's won us, it's won our hearts. And actually that's an important thing as we think about being a church here in Bellingham where we say, you know, we're part of this mission that God has to bring, you know, bring the knowledge of who he is to all people and to realize that the way that people are going to come to know him is not going to be through our coercion. It's not going to be through us arguing people or convincing them or wrestling them that we're right and they're wrong. That never will work. It is we display for them the, Christ, the love of Christ and the cross, and then we show them the love of Christ in our actions. And it's the love of Christ that draws people. That's what wins. That, that's how God does his mission, and that is how he is going to draw and bind all the nations together. Okay? So the first thing we see in this passage is that the cross brings the nations to God. It wins them. It draws them in. Okay? The second thing we see in this passage is that the cross also brings God to the nations. The cross brings God to the nation. And you can see that in this mysterious verse, verse 45. I'm sorry, not verse 45. It's verse 51. I got that wrong in my notes. Okay? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, so in the, the temple in Jerusalem, there's a giant curtain in the temple that ripped from the bottom right when Jesus died. This miraculous thing that happened. 
And I think to understand the meaning of that, we have to understand something of what the temple was about. What, what did the temple mean? I think the best way to think of what the temple was in the Old Testament was basically the overlap between heaven and earth. So if you think of heaven as the place where God dwells, lives, earth is the place where man lives, the temple is the place where God's dwelling place and man's dwelling place overlap, okay? Heaven and earth overlap in the temple. And the temple was both a copy of heaven and a copy of earth. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, where it talks about the priests who are serving in the temple, the writer of Hebrews says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So on the one hand, you go into heaven, you go into the temple, and it's like heaven. But on the other hand, many biblical scholars have said, but actually when you went into the temple, it was also like a mini earth. You know, if you went into the temple, there was this big um, reservoir of water, this bronze reservoir of water, and that they called the sea. And it's like, oh, there's a sea in there. And then there were these statues of oxen. And you're like, oh, there's animals in there. And then there'd be all these, you know... Uh, engraved um, uh, pomegranates and, and, you know, and the whole thing felt like you were in this mi- little world. It was like a mini world that you came into. And so it was both heaven and it was earth at the same times. And so what the temple was, was in sen- some sense a small picture of where the story of the world is going, where heaven and earth would become one place. The temple was like a mini cosmos that had been filled with the presence of God and the glory of God. And that was what God's intention was, was to make his creation, his whole universe, into a temple where he dwelt with man. And so what does this all this mean for our understanding of this passage? Well, the curtain of the temple was there to keep people out of God's presence. And so, you know, when you hear about a temple, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible... You imagine it's a place where people go to worship. You know, you come in here, you, you come in this room to worship God. It's maybe something like this. People stroll in. Maybe they're a Christian. Maybe they're not a Christian. They're going to listen and see what they think about what God has to say. But that's not what the temple was. The temple was not a building for public worship. You couldn't just stroll into the temple. First of all, there was an outer court, you know, acres of an outer court where there were only the Gentiles were allowed. And then there was kind of an inner precinct where only Jews were permitted to go. And then there was this giant curtain that only priests could go past the curtain. And then there was another curtain where only the high priest could go through that curtain once per year into the Holy of Holies, the most presence of God. Now, we don't know which curtain it was that ripped at this moment, but this curtain... I think, and the things that were embroidered on the curtain tell us something about the meaning of it being torn from the top to the bottom. And I, and I think there's two meanings to it, okay? So what does it mean when the curtain was torn? First, it means that the cross destroys the separation of heaven and earth. The cross is destroying the separation of heaven and earth. Now, scholars have noted that the curtain on the temple that kept people out, you know, the priests could only go in there, had embroidered on it stars like the heavens. I think Josephus says it looks just like the stars in the heavens. There were stars, you know, and, and so it looked like the sky. And so when you think of what the temple was, it was kind of like we're all out here in the earth, and you look at the curtain, which is like the sky, and then on the other side of the sky is what? Heaven, God's presence. 
And so what's happening when the, the curtain is torn in two, it's almost like the sky is being ripped open and heaven is now flooding into earth. And the two things are being combined. The thing that separated them has been ripped apart in heaven and earth, you know, and so heaven is flooding in. And in many ways, this passage is describing kind of the, this collapse of the cosmos, right? So verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So it's like all the stars and the sun are going dark. And then in the second part of verse 51, it says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And so what this means is when the temple is where God's presence was, when the curtain rips, it's God's presence going out into the earth. God is on his mission. He's no longer contained in this one place. You cannot contain him. He's going to go out, search people out like you and me, and bring his dwelling to every corner of the earth. And so essentially what's happening in the cross is it's like the end of the world is happening in the middle of the history. The end of history happens in the middle of history. Because this scene is, you know, it's kind of like final judgment, right? You know, the sky's going dark, the earth is shaking. And then there's also this strange verse that some of you saw there, verse 52, where it says, the tombs also were open. So when the earth shook, the tombs split open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I know some of you read that and think, bodies raising from the dead, coming out of tombs? That's weird, fantastic, strange. Okay, first of all, you have to come back next week, because we're going to talk about that the whole time, next Sunday, in detail. But what this is saying is, in the Old Testament, the Jews had this expectation that at the end of history, God would raise up his people, raise up their bodies. Death would be reversed. It's not just their souls would be saved, their bodies. There would be a renewal of God's creation. And there's a foretaste of the ending happening in the middle. And so that's something about what God does. How he does his mission is he takes the ending, this perfected new heavens and new earth, and he sticks it back in the middle of history. And I think that that is essentially how we have to understand who we are as the church. Because the Bible tells us that now the church is the new temple. You know, how, how is the, uh, the temple going to be big enough <laughs> to have all the nations of the world come and worship God there? Well, the church, this community, is the new dwelling place of God. Where is the place where heaven and earth overlaps? It's no longer in a building. It's in a community. It's in people. You are the temple. God is dwelling inside of you. And this is God's mission, is to bring his presence to every square inch of this creation. And so he's filled your body with his presence and spirit. You display the glory of Jesus if you are in Christ. And so he sends you out into your workplace and he sends you into your home and into your neighborhood and he sends you into your friendships. And all of those little places in, in, in Bellingham and Whatcom County, God has sent the presence of his temple. And he wants to bring that presence everywhere. He wants to flood, um, and so that flood his creation with the knowledge of his glory. And that's how the New Testament speaks, is that we're all like these living stones that are being built up into this metaphorical building. Jesus is the chief cornerstone that we're all built on top of into this great building. And so what God has brilliantly done is instead of having this one building in the Middle East where the nations would come to, 
He's destroyed that building, and Jesus is now rebuilding a global building, which is a community of people where all nations can come. And this Lord's Day, people in every nation have come to worship in God's temple and to be in his presence. And when people are here in our midst, in our worship services, in our home groups, in our life together, it is now the overlap of heaven and earth is in our lives and in our bodies. And let me just make one aside. You know, this is one reason why our church, for our church, church planning is such an important part of the work that we do, is we are planning new communities like this because those communities are the place where heaven and earth overlap. And we want heaven and earth to overlap in more places. That was what Jesus tells us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven to earth. And so that overlap is going to more and more places as God is going out. And so that's the first thing, is that the cross destroys the separation between heaven and earth. Heaven has broken out of the temple and is going to every corner has come to us. Okay? But the second thing is that the cross not only destroys the separation between heaven and earth, the cross also destroys the separation between God and man. And, you know, if you know the very beginning of the Bible... Talks about a garden where humanity was made in a garden, which was actually the first temple. That's where God dwelled with man, was in the garden. And humanity was expelled from God's presence from the garden. And do you know what was put at the entrance to the garden to keep uh, humanity out of God's presence? It was cher- these angelic beings called cherubim, and they had these fiery swords that anyone tries to come into God's presence, they'd be slain. And what's happened in the cross is Jesus was slain in our place so that now access to God's presence is made available to all people. And so on that curtain, you know, on the one hand, on the curtain, there were these stars. So the curtain was like the sky being ripped open and heavens, you know, flooding into earth. Also on that curtain were cherubim that were woven into the curtain. They were the ones who were blocking the way into God's presence, say, you are not admitted. You are not welcomed here because of our sins, because we've disobeyed God and rebelled against him. The curtain is ripped open. Access has been opened. And God is welcoming us. And he says there's no longer any separation in Jesus between God and man. And that, what that means is for some of you, if you come here and you say, you know what, I've got millions of reasons for God to separate himself from me. I have sins and failings in my past, in my continual sins in my life, of many reasons why God would not want to look on me or want me near him or cherish me as his child. That separation has been ripped apart. There's no more division. He says, come into my house. Come into my presence in Jesus. All. No matter who you are. And you come by faith. And what's so amazing in this passage is that happens. And what's the first thing that we see? Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Here are the soldiers who beat Jesus, spit on him, mocked him. Maybe they were part of crucifying him. They're, they're keeping watch of it, and their lives are radically transformed. And the cross, by beholding the cross, it created faith in them. Their hearts were changed. They said, I believe. I want to follow the Lord. They're captured by it. That's what the cross does. Even the people who would crucify Jesus are welcomed. 
And if they are welcomed, you and I are welcomed into his presence. And so here we see that the cross brings the nations to God. They are drawn by his love. But the cross also brings God to the nations by destroying the separation of heaven and earth and the separation of God and man. And this is the great story that we are all a part of. This is the mission that we get the great privilege of participating in. The mission of the cross. Let's pray together.